Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Identify yourself. It is I, the ghost of Edward R. Murrow. I come to judge you, Ebenezer Wolf. Are you sure you don't mean... You don't mean Wolf Blitzer. It's a common mistake, so... Wolf Blitzer, he is just... He's the worst. A terrible man. Drag him down to hell and beat him with chains or whatever you do. I have visited him, too. This night I come to speak to all of you. All the journalists who went into the apartment, all the anchors who let it happen, all the executives hiding behind all of the anchors, each of you has defecated on my great legacy. Andrea Mitchell, she is definitely the one that you want. Take her. Just poke her with red-hot fireplace tools, because I am totally innocent. No one is innocent. Wait a minute. I've got an actual ghost in my house. Stand right there, Ed. Hi, Bobby. Uh-huh. Get a camera over to my house right away. Uh-huh. What's on right now? Is it the Sex Slaves rerun? Uh-huh. Well, get ready to bump it and get a crawl going. Live exclusive break in domestic terrorism case. Ghost of famous journalist arrives with message from grave. Uh-huh. Hey, Ed, are you under any kind of time pressure? Or... Uh, I have to go scream at Charles Krauthammer again, but I guess I can wait here for a few minutes. Wait, what am I saying? What hope is there of shaming you when even my rebuke is just another tawdry sensation? None whatsoever. That's why I love this industry. Get ready for a show about journalistic ethics. That'll be a short segment. And other responses to domestic terror. And now, Darth Vader's ex-landlord, Colin McEnroe. And when they asked to see Darth's apartment, I said no. Uh, And then the guy from Inside Edition gave me $1,000. So what was I going to do? Uh, it's not really true that the segment on journalism ethics is going to be a short segment. It's just that, well, you get the joke. Uh, anyway, uh, we are going to talk a little bit later today about responses to President Obama's speech last night. We will be joined by Senator Chris Murphy, uh, who actually, speaking of the press, was on MSNBC being interrupted by Chris Matthews, which, of course, is the format of that show. You go on the show and you are interrupted by Chris Matthews. Uh, but anyway, he'll be. I won't interrupt him, I promise. Joining us right now, one of our favorite guests, David Fulkenflick. He is media correspondent for NPR, the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old World uh, Media Empire, the old media empires. And there are many things to talk about. But David Fulgenflick, I feel like we really do have to start with last Friday um, as I was coming into work, getting ready to go on my show. This this spectacle unfolded. (laughs) Unlike, I mean, you sort of think you've seen everything, but apparently not. Uh, this was like, you know, a wild melee, you know. Uh, I, I saw somebody online compare it to one of those, uh, uh, you know, sales at Filene's basements for wedding dresses where people get trampled or the day after Thanksgiving. This was kind of like that for journalists. Obviously, the site of the apartments of the two uh, killers uh, in the San Bernardino massacre uh, 
uh, was a site of some interest. Journalists had been milling about outside. And then at a certain point, for reasons still not entirely pinned down, the landlord assented to allow a journalist or two in. Everyone flooded after. It wasn't the place where the weapons were cached. That appears to have been in a garage behind the apartment in uh, Redlands, California, very close by to San Bernardino. But uh, you know, I mean, you, you had this scene playing out, and the problem with the scene was not that the journalists wanted to go inside, uh, and you could even argue it wasn't that they wanted to go inside in in a pa- dense packs as though it were the Tokyo subway at rush hour, or you know, a, a pack of lemmings off a cliff, but that they were doing it live on television, and so there was no moment to reflect on what you were actually doing. Uh, the place itself was being kind of trampled and overrun. A couple of journalists, as we understand from contemporaneous postings and reports, were helping the landlord tear down the the door and. You know, it wasn't just that it was unseemly and distasteful as though it was pearl clutching in the term of a friend of mine who's a media scholar who disagrees with me a bit about all this. Uh, It was that there was no editorial uh, filter discretion judgment being exercised in any way. It was as though you were just going from item to item inside that apartment say, oh, look, here's something. Is this worthwhile? No? Okay. How about this? And in the process, they put up uh, personal material about people who so far have in no way been personally linked to the massacre. They put up identifying material of one of the shooter's mothers. She has not been linked in any way other than her, you know, having given birth to one of these people. Uh, It it seemed as though it was uh, damaging and uh, uh, incredibly voyeuristic and intrusive. All right. We're going to hear a clip of this. But before we play the clip, I I do want to say that, you know, one of the things that was remarkable about this, as you're saying, David, is that many of the things that we would associate. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Broadcast News, the stuff that Holly Hunter is saying into, you know, the earpiece of William Hurt or or Albert Brooks. I mean, instead of being set into an earpiece, instead of being conducted behind the scenes the way things have been done, you were sort of hearing those kinds of instructions in real time. So we'll play a clip. You're going to be hearing Andrea Mitchell uh, talking to a reporter, Carrie Sanders who's in the bathroom going through these just sort of photo collections, these kind of, you know, they're, they're ring-bound notebook photo collections of persons unknown, people who may be friends of the... Who knows who they are? Anyway, let's hear a little of that. Yeah, this is clearly a birthday party that was taking place with the cake and the smiles. And it looks like somebody's ninth birthday party there. Let's make sure we don't know. Okay, here's the first let's make sure we don't see the children. Let's not let's not show the child, Carrie. Let's well, cut we away can from say that. here that this is probably not her because it says Saren on the back. It says Saren on the back there. Um, and I'm sorry, Andrea. This is sort of unfolding live as we're doing I it, so I'm not sure what the next picture is going to be until yeah. I pull them open. It's worth noting that, as Andrea Mitchell says, don't show the children. He continues to show the children as if she had spoken not at all. And then he says, as you hear him say, uh, David, he says, well, you know, and all with all due respect, this is live, so we can't control it. Well, I mean, that's the problem, right? This is live when it shouldn't be. Well, and you're also not having people trained front of mind to think what is the implications of what I'm showing in the moment. I'm sure Kerry Sanders has had that conversation before. He's a very experienced uh, reporter for many years for MSNBC, NBC. But nonetheless, uh, he's not thinking about that at the moment. I don't know how well he heard what Andrew Mitchell was saying, uh, whether she or her executives were, this was the first time they were conveying these to him or not. It probably was. Uh, you know, you heard that sound in the background. That noise was the shot, uh, uh, the sound of uh, myriad photographers taking shot after shot after shot. That's in his ears. He's looking at the stuff in front of him. He's paying attention to that. You know, 
her voice in his uh, uh, little earpiece is probably the third or fourth down the list of priorities for him. He wants to get things before other people. I mean, it was an incredible scrum. You have Fox in there, CNN in there. You had a lot of folks in there. Uh, uh, the tabloid uh, show uh, Inside Editions, Jim Murray was in there as as you suggested at the top of the hour. Uh, the, the claim was made by Kerry Sanders that uh, Jim Murray and Inside Edition had paid $1,000 to the landlord to get the original access. It was just a scene. And these guys are not thinking, you know, what benefit, what harm is being done by what I'm showing. Uh, and it's not that I'm against the idea of reporters being there or against the idea of reporters being places that are somehow you know, possibly thought to be uh, uh, to have implications of, of are we interfering with privacy? That is, I'm very much against the idea of, of reporters breaking the law, and I'm against the idea of reporters uh, in contaminating a, an investigation site. But you know, federal law enforcement officials, uh, going all the way up to the head of the FBI, have said they no longer had any interest in that site. Well, that to me is crazy. That there's no possible additional benefit ever to be gleaned. No potentiality of that. But, you know, giving that the credit that it's due, uh, you know, you can argue that the reporters coming in by the dozens are not trampling on evidence. I, I think that there has to be something. But there could be something gleaned from the apartment, from looking it through as a journalist and trying to take stock and providing footage and providing context. That's not what we saw. I talked to a, an old friend of mine who's retired now, he used to be a reporter for Newsweek, who decades ago, when the son of Sam, who's, you know, this guy who terrified New Yorkers by, by, by shooting at, you know, myriad people here in the, in the 1970s during a sweltering summer. Uh, he was, this reporter friend of mine, was able to gain access for Newsweek uh, to uh, David Berkowitz's apartment. That was the guy who was known in the tabloids as Son of Sam. And he got in there by talking his way with a couple of cops, knowing exactly who he was and what he wanted to do. But it was him and I think ultimately another reporter from the L.A. Times and perhaps one other. And they were told by detectives there, don't touch anything. But they took their time. They went around. They crafted and filed pieces that had been thoughtfully done. And it was not a melee. And they were able to offer some sense and some texture of what it was like to look at the abode of where this guy who had wanted to be a mass murderer lived. And that's uh, that's perhaps illuminating and useful and journalistic. What you saw here was raw material being sprayed out. It was as though, I don't know, there were a thousand mosaic tiles, you know, that were scattered on a floor. And Kerry Sanders and his competitors were picking them up one by one and saying, here's something that looks turquoise. And picking up another and saying, here's something that looks a little maroon. And you have no idea what the big picture looks like at all. So with a little bit of time to think about this now, the question of sort of command and control comes up or chain of command or something. So it seems, watching Kerry Sanders in particular, but the reporters in general in that scene, that they're kind of on their own, that they're kind of making their own decisions. As you say, maybe Kerry Sanders can even hear the on-air instructions coming from Andrea Mitchell. But does anybody know yet whether there were were any kinds of instructions, any kinds of uh, of instructions? encouragements for restraint coming either from anchors, producers, executives? I mean, was there a teacher anywhere in this kindergarten? Um, you know, at Fox and at CNN, uh, from what I can tell, there was uh, there were no images shown of uh, of photographs of relatives of the two shooters. And they didn't put up, for example, MSNBC, Carrie Sanders put up a, the, the driver's license of the mother mm-hmm. of one of the shooters. And that had her birth date. That had her address. You know, somebody could be targeted for that. That's not nothing. You know, there were, there were identifying details in which the, you could use to, you know, acquire ID cards or do other things. This, this, this was not done on CNN and Fox. And 
CNN took a bit of a victory lap with its statement that it put out, making clear that it had intentionally not done so. And that's a decision used in the control room from how you crop footage or you direct the camera person or or things like that. Was there some uh, restraint uh, exercise? Sure. But the instructions at the outset was get in there because the you know, there is no great benefit to not being in there if you see your competitors all rushing in. And what there is is the great harm that they might encounter something uh, unexpected, unscripted, and uh, quite electric. And that you know that if people are flipping through the dial as they tend to during moments of possible drama, and your guys aren't inside and the other guys are, they're going to go with the other guys. And so the notion is that there there was anything really ultimately but the directive get in there, uh, I think is foolish. So... You know, some there have been some pieces, as you say, written in defense of this or at least in justification of this. I, most of them strike me as a little bit wooden-headed, particularly in the sense that they, they seem to ignore the whole question of what needs to be shown live and what doesn't. So we know that Tahrir Square, we know that the cops using paramilitary-style weapons against demonstrators in, in Ferguson, that needs to be live. If you can get it on the air live, you put it on the air live. There's a compelling public interest in this. This would seem to be in the category of things that you go and file uh, and, and uh, that you go and film, and then you you look at it, you edit, you see what you've got, then you put it on the air. But for some reason or other, it has to be live now. And I'm wondering, I'm sure you saw the same thing, the la- latest round of Nielsen data saying that um, although broadcast television viewing and conventional television viewing is falling, it's being more than offset by people looking at comparable things on mobile devices, whether it's phones or tablets. And of course, the thing about those are that people watch them in real time or people expect to be able to look on their phone and see something they want to see. And, and I'm wondering if that creates a kind of pressure to, to show something live that really probably should be held, edited, looked at, um, and probably would have been five years ago. Well, certainly, uh, you know, all the guys, uh, all the people I talk to uh, at the uh, TV uh, cable channels, who are thinking about how news is presented, look very hard at what's happening on mobile. And they know that's not the way of the future. They know that's the way essentially of the present uh, and that they are uh, broadcasting, if you like, to multiple audiences in multiple ways. But they take lessons from how things work well on mobile even as they try to compete with it, even as they try to hold it at bay. And if you think about periscoping, you know, it's the the function where you can live stream on a video, on a mobile device and you just send out a little alert to people who are friended you or following you and say, I'm about to do this, and then they can plug in. This felt to me like a periscope, you know, like one of those live streams that you would catch on your mobile device and that that's what, you know, there was a rawness to it and, and a, a complete absence of context to it, it, kind of in the way you would see in a live stream if you're walking on the street and you happen not to be bumping into people, but looking at your iPhone and you're seeing a live stream of somebody who's telling you about something in a in another country as they walk through. And not everything's going to be interesting, but you, your expectation is built that way. Well, I think, you know, in a sense, cable kind of felt like that's okay. And remember, the most watched stuff on TV are the things where you don't know the endings, right? Mm-hmm. It's why sports is so po- are, are so popular. It's why the NFL is such a mainstay of uh, all kinds of uh, of networks that put billions of dollars into it because they are guaranteed a payoff that you don't know when the game starts. Well, this for news is a little bit like that. You don't know what the payoff is in going into that apartment. It might be minor, as it was in this case. It might show and illustrate and evoke a little something about the people. To me, the craziness is just you're doing it in the presence of, you know, 70 or 80 of your closest friends. So mm-hmm. the ability to do so in, in a thoughtful way is essentially stripped of you, and you don't have that choice at all. So David Fulkenflik, um, 
one last question about this, then we'll take a break. We've got some other things we want to talk about in the world of journalism. So, you know, in the aftermath, there was there were some apologies. There was, I mean, even in the uh, in the present time of it, there was some uh, lack of comfort evinced by Anderson Cooper and maybe even heard a little bit from uh, Andrea Mitchell, although we also heard Andrea Mitchell saying, get in tight on that photograph. But anyway, there was some discomfort in real time. And then afterwards, there have been a few statements, apologies, um, explanations. I mean, does shaming work? I mean, is it, is it any more likely or less likely that in the, under the same circumstances, this will repeat itself? Oh, I, th- I think the press will find myriad ways to uh, to make similar uh, uh, mistakes in judgment uh, and and very different mistakes in judgment as times unfold. I think you know uh, you know journalists are not uh, priests. They're not supposed to be uh, perfect in every regard. They're supposed to push hard for a story. You know, there was a story circulating, uh, a true one, about Bob Schieffer after the assassination of uh, of JFK and how he essentially dressed like a police detective and intercepted uh, the the mother of Lee Harvey Oswald, drove her uh, uh, to another place to, to get an exclusive interview, brought her back to the police station. They kind of chased him out of there. But he had gotten an exclusive uh, for his employer as a reporter and and – Fifty years later, uh, fifty some years later, we we say, well, wow, what a rogue, what a scoundrel, what a great story. Uh, in this case, I don't think anything great came out of this. The apology was real from MSNBC. They apologized for the photos and for the identifying information. But I think it's very notable that, according to the spokeswoman I, I talked with over the weekend, anyway, that apology had never been read aloud on the air. Hmm. So they're perfectly happy to distribute it to people like me who ask, well, guys, how do you feel about that in retrospect? But they're not telling their viewers that. And I thought that's pretty notable absence on their part. All right, David Fulkenflick, let's grab a quick break here. We'll come back. We're going to talk about a remarkable move by The New York Times running an editorial on the front page for the first time in almost 100 years. Why don't the newscasters cry when they read about people who die? At least they could be decent enough to put just a tear in. Welcome back. We're talking to David Fulkenflick, media correspondent for NPR, the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. So um, no sooner had uh, David Fulkenflick settled back into his recliner, uh, having uh, gotten through this uh, whole episode on Friday uh, of the invasion of this property. Uh, But in fact, a new media story broke. The New York Times putting an editorial on page one. Not that page one necessarily means anything to anybody these days, although I still get it delivered to my driveway. I know what page one looks like and doesn't look like. And uh, David, typically it does not have an editorial uh, on page one. You have to go back a long way since the last time they did that. So what happened here? Well, clearly uh, uh, this had been something where Arthur Salzberger had talked to uh, uh, his top deputies, uh, Andrew Rosenthal, the head of the editorial page, uh, Dean Baquet, the uh, the executive editor, the head of the news uh, report, and said, you know, this feels like something I want to have a big impact on. I intend to uh, for us to publish a major editorial about this issue. And Dean Buckeye said, well, you know, if you need real estate, let, let me know and, and we'll make that happen. Uh, the news and the opinion sides do not work in concert except logistically. Uh, that's something that a lot of uh, readers of a lot of newspapers over the years, including ones that I used to work for, would sometimes take issue with or just refuse to believe. But they really didn't tend to work in tandem uh, in terms of the tone of coverage or the and the editorial philosophy of the editorial pages. But that said, Salzberger wanted to make uh, a real statement, uh, and they, they published this boxed 
editorial on the front page, the first time since 1920 in which the New York Times was denouncing uh, uh, Warren Harding's uh, uh, nomination as the Republican nominee uh, for president back then. And, you know, you got to think of all the issues over the years that they did not devote uh, front page editorial to, you know, the attack on the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, the Holocaust, the the Cold War and the threat by the Soviets, the Red Scare, Vietnam, Watergate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff over those decades that they thought not. In this case, Salzberger said and and his editorial uh, team decided that uh, – there was certain numbness to the response uh, time after time. Uh, certainly your listeners, sadly, uh, as aware or more than aware than most, but of these mass killings and mass shootings that have happened across the country and seem to have picked up pace even as gun violence itself seems to have declined in recent decades. And uh, Salzburg said, you know, we just don't want to write another editorial. We want to focus attention. And his hope is to get both readers, uh, activists, uh, ordinary citizens, but particularly, I think, I'm guessing, decision makers and elites to, to rally around this issue. Yeah. And I, well, I wonder, I mean, I agree that there are things of gigantic importance that are not addressed this way with the page one story. I don't even know if we said that the editorial was about gun control. But anyway, um, that uh, that climate change right now and the Paris talks are every bit as dire, if not more dire. On the other hand, maybe the difference is, and it's kind of a restatement of what you just said, but um, that this is a very static set of responses over really years and decades to a series of very dynamic situations. So if you take something like Watergate or the Vietnam War, that was a dynamic situation in which governmental responses and and societal responses were also dynamic. They were ever-changing. And, of course, one of the purposes of an editorial is to shape public opinion, to inform public opinion. I'm sure the Times is thinking, well, how many many editorials have we done about just sensible gun laws, just something to rein in the tide of these mass shootings? We've done lots of them. It has had zero effect as far as we can tell. So this is a little bit maybe Howard Beale opening the window and yelling, I'm mad at hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, except it's the august and staid New York Times editorial board just looking for a way maybe just to grab people by the the lapels. Well, and I think his argument seems to be, you know, the same thing is not to be perfectly rational about this. The same thing is not to sit back and publish another 400 word thing that's on page, uh, you know, A28 or wherever it is uh, that people who are thoughtful people will turn to each weekend but, you know, may not uh, get as wide a circulation. And obviously by doing it on page one, he was looking for a splash and he knew that that would attract much more attention, let's be honest, on social media and that it would probably be much more shared than the ordinary editorial by just virtue of its real estate in the print edition where the the legacy uh, real estate uh, can affect the uh, the, the digital uh, f- uh, footprint ultimately, if you will. Yeah, so, that's a good point. You know, I, I, I hadn't really he's... thought of that actually but the fact that people wind up tweeting about it and stuff like that means it's that even huge, people... huge after effect yeah. on, on Facebook and Twitter and other places. Even people who never seen the New York Times uh, front page will at some level understand that something paradigm changing just happened. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, whether or not it has effect is another thing. You saw a number of people, including folks who are sympathetic, the idea of greater uh, uh, exertion of gun control, say maybe uh, banning certain kinds of assault assault file uh, style weapons is not uh, either the most politically accomplishable or the most effective way of reducing the number of killings in this country. But this is what the Times wanted to do. It just felt that this issue was so real, so 
tangible, so important to address, that it would put it side by side with the top news of the day above the fold on the front to try to grab the attention of its readership. And I think knowing how they work to grab the attention of the kind of elite decision makers, both inside and outside of government, to focus attention. And we had an interesting debate in the newsroom. You know, do editorials ever really affect things on the national level? I think they tend to do more locally, but on a national level, are editorials really going to accomplish anything? Well, if you look back to the normalization of relations with Cuba, uh, Obama White House officials, a very senior ones, said, you know, a series of editorials uh, in the New York Times helped to, you know, they drew upon those editorials, helped to influence them as they thought hard about this decision. Uh, if you look back during the civil rights era, there, were, uh, there was a legacy of uh, editorials in crusading papers like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other kind of liberal editorial pages in southern uh, papers that helped to influence not just the local debate but the national debate and helped stiffen the resolve of uh, federal officials in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations to make sure to take action and push progress forward on racial integration. So, you know, you there are times and moments on key pivotal issues where editorials can be influential. I think it's not, you know, we just don't know yet the extent to which this one will will be among them. You know, David, we've only got about uh, two minutes and change left, so this is a much longer conversation, but you know, I contrast that. At least it was identified as an editorial. I was reading the next day on page one of the New York Times this article about an, a new strategy. California attack has U.S. rethinking a strategy on homegrown terror. And I re- come on this paragraph. It was actually on the jump, but it starts on page one as the lead story in the Times. Times. Unable to curb the availability of guns at home or extremist propaganda from overseas, the authorities may have to rely on on encouraging Americans to watch one another and report suspicions. No lack, no lack of attribution in that sentence. Federal and local governments already have programs urging friends, families, and neighbors to identify people targeted for recruitment. I thought, well, <laughs> are you reporting opinion here or shaping opinion? Because that first sentence, to me anyway, needs an attribution. Well, I think I would shave it slightly differently. It seems to me uh, almost an unquestioning reflection of what what the reporters and editors are hearing from their sources in official Washington. You know, I think that there might have been an acknowledgement or a slight nod to the question of, you know, is this going to get us into, you know, everyone spying on everyone other, but not really played out. And I think if, you know, the Times is doing its job, it'll unpack that. It'll source that a lot better. It'll define what the intentions and implications are of, of those statements. But you're right. It does raise a host of questions, even as uh, there's no doubt that Americans are concerned about ISIS and terror-inspired uh, uh, attacks in this country, perhaps by people who are residents or citizens here. Uh, but there, there are implications about civil liberties. There are implications about, you know, you know, how much do you want to go down the East German route? Uh, and I, I think that the Times needs to do a better job of not only sourcing what it's saying, but then unpacking it and questioning what they're hearing from those sources. Right. There was a little bit more questioning in the article. Maybe I'm not being entirely fair. But uh, anyway, well, there's no time to be ent- entirely fair, which is one of the problems with journalism. <laughs> David Fulkenflick, uh, media correspondent for NPR, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. And very generous with your time. We appreciate it. We're going to take a little break. There are going to be some nice people to, uh, talking about supporting public radio and maybe like this show in particular. If you do pledge during this show, I think it counts well on our ledger. So please think about doing that when we come back uh, in a, an interview with Chris Murphy, U.S. Senator. It's been very visible on some of the issues that David and I were just talking about. 
the Colin McEnroe uh, show tackling some really big topics today here on WNPR. And hopefully you can support this show right now with a pledge of support at 1-800-584-2788. Or you can go online to make your pledge at WNPR.org. John Dankosky joined today by Patrick Scahill. Uh, Patrick, the founding producer of the Colin yep. McEnroe show. He's now our, our science reporter. And we're both thrilled to be here talking about this program that we love so much. If you love it as much as we do, support it now. 1-800-584-2788. Yeah, the Colin McEnroe Row show obviously is is like nothing else on the public radio dial. If you value the news and the information that Colin is bringing you uh, every Monday on the scramble and all just the great topics that he brings uh, throughout every day of the week. I mean, last week he was talking about placebos. You never know what it's going to be, but you know that it's always going to be informative. It's going to be fun. It's going to be really interesting. And he's going to have great, great guests like David Folkenflake, who was just on. If you value this type of conversation, we are asking you to call up and support it at whatever level you can. The number to call, it's 1-800-584-2788. You know, when uh, he started a couple of years ago, this idea of the scramble on Mondays, the the notion was that we're all sitting around thinking about and talking yep. about a few really important issues in the world, things that uh, maybe are you know in our social media feed or maybe uh, what we're talking about over the weekend with friends and family. Then there's always new discoveries, things that maybe are off the radar but are brand new that week. He is trying to make a brand new show each and every Monday filled with these ideas, and I hope you appreciate what goes into that. It really is ear-to-the-ground reporting and then talking about it on the radio. And as we just heard with David Falkenflick, great guests, people who have thoughtful ideas about what's going on right now. If you want to support The Colin McEnroe Show, it's 1-800-584-2788. You can go online to WNPR.org. We've got thank you items galore, Patrick, that we can send you. We do, yeah, including for a gift of $10 a month. We can do Kion Wolf's personalized voicemail greeting. She'll uh, record a voice voicemail greeting for you, and it'll be sent to you as an MP3 file via email. Nice. Uh, that's for $10 a month or more. Uh, you can also get the Blue Nano uh, Bluetooth speaker, which is another popular thank you gift item that we have, which is also for a pledge of $10 a month. Uh, lots of folks get thank you gifts. Some folks don't. Uh, but the most important thing is that you do just go online to WNPR.org, make your pledge there, or check out the thank you gifts there and make a pledge, hopefully. Or give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. I'm talking a lot about knit caps. It's that time yeah, of year for knit cap time of year. It'll be cold eventually. It, eventually. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's still sort of, Global warming is taking effect here, and we're we're still uh, pretty warm for December. But we've got a, a WNPR knit cap in lim- limited quant- quantity, I might add. It's a sort of a nice slate gray cap with a blue WNPR logo. Very attractive cap. That can be yours for a gift of just $5 a month. And think about what $5 a month really means. It's that's like burrito money, Patrick. Right. That's like going out that's for a bagel. That's how I measure things. Yeah. Right? It's but like it's, how many burritos. How many burritos will this car cost me? It's <laughs> nice. <laughs> exactly. I need to drive <laughs> and I need to eat. But you make that calculation. And here's the thing. Public radio doesn't have to be thousands of dollars. Of course, if you have thousands of dollars, we would love for you to give them to us if, if you can afford to do so. But if you can just afford $5 a month, that will go a long way toward paying for this program. And we can send you the knit cap or the white flower farm, amaryllis bulb, one of the other thank yep. you items. A lot of things we can send you. But just do it now because we're trying to raise money near the end of this calendar year so we can pay for the programming here at WNPR. Uh, we had a call come in from an anonymous uh, donor. Actually, they went online uh, from West Hartford, my hometown, and made a pledge there. They've gotten us started. We're hoping that you can join that donor uh, and help us onward. We have a, a, a fairly sizable goal for this overall campaign. It's just one week, but we need to raise uh, well over $100,000. And we do it hour by hour, bit by bit, pledge by pledge. We're hoping that you can get on board and join that team of folks who not only listen to this station, but also donate to it. Uh, to do that, you can make a simple phone call. It only takes a few minutes, and you might be on your lunch break uh, right now anyway. Help 
Help us out. The number is 1-800-584-2788. And we've got another brand new item for those of you who are absolutely interested in supporting local art and artisans. We've got a brand new calendar, yeah. uh, Patrick. It looks this fantastic. Is, it's really cool, isn't it? It's from Hartford Prince and WNPR. Yep. We work together with them. It's the 2016 Retro Calendar, and it basically uh, is a single-page calendar. It has all the uh, months and dates at the bottom, yep. and it's a it's a poster on a heavy uh, cardstock. Mm-hmm. They're a letterpress printer, and it's a beautiful. It says Our Community, Your Radio, and it has sort of a retro design yeah. radio towers radio on it. Towers, yep. It's pretty cool. It's really neat. For yeah. $6 a month is, is the pledge. Yeah, and the color on it's fantastic, too. So you can see a picture of that at WNPR.org uh, or pick up your phone, and, you know, if, if you liked. I, I That was a good pitch for this calendar. Yeah. I would get it. Oh, you like that? You like yeah. that pitch? It was good. I, I, thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. I, it was the first time I just tried it out for the first time. I, I, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked that. Hopefully it'll show up in the in the actual uh, dollar figures right. coming, up, uh, right. coming up here. We have just about 15 seconds, Patrick. Yeah, and we did have that uh, friend from West Hartford who's helped us out. If you've already made your pledge, thank you so much. Um, as, as we said, we're only here for one week, so now is the time to do it. It's the end of the year. It's the time of giving. We're asking uh, you to give us uh, some of your time and uh, your money as well. The number is 1-800-584-2788. On our next segment, Senator Chris Murphy. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Zachary LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anderson Cooper. For show pages, articles, and footage of the Here and Now staff going through Ira Glass's apartment, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, how Dante can save you. And now, back to Colin. Actually, I wrote that and I got it wrong. Tomorrow's show is about espionage and spies, and then we'll have um, a reprise of our amazing Dante show on Wednesday. Um, Here is the scramble. Uh, We're talking about things that really do happen in the news. Uh, Joining us uh, right now is U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, He's junior U.S. Senator from Connecticut, member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and uh, in many of his capacities, uh, very much a person who's had a lot to say about things that have been happening lately, uh, including President Obama's speech last night. Welcome, first of all, Senator Murphy. Thanks for having me. So um, last night, President uh, Obama gave a speech, and it kind of it talked about sort of three different. You could almost sort of say there are lines on a graph that all cross, right? Well, part of them is uh, one of the issues is the um, attempt to degrade the capacity of ISIS or ISIL to function in the Middle East, in Syria and Iraq. Another one is uh, problems with the availability of weapons in this country, and the third is homegrown terrorism, as they now call it, and uh, people who might rise up and affiliate with. ISIS or ISIL without necessarily having had any direct contact uh, with them, but simply as a result of a kind of um, domestic interest in all of that. So he was really trying to talk about three things at once and in some ways was essentially summarizing what has been his policy all along. To what degree do you think he, he broke new ground last night? I don't think he buys into the idea that he has to take a dramatically different direction, notwithstanding what happened in San Bernardino. And so I think what you heard from him last night was an explanation of our current course. Um, and, you know, listen, there aren't a lot of people out there who know, for instance, that uh, ISIL's territory that they control in Iraq and Syria has actually been reduced by 25% just in the last year. Now, that's not enough, 
but it frankly explains why they are starting to look uh, at attacks outside of the Middle East because they have less of an ability to inflict harm within that theater. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think the president put some new things on the table, which make a lot of sense to me, um, reforming the visa waiver program to take a look at people coming in from uh, Europe in particular, where they may be, have been radicalized and changing our gun laws, to, which makes sense to make sure that terrorists can't get their hands on weapons. But, you know, I think this is a president who um, believes that if he stays true to the path that he's on, that he will defeat and degrade them, and who is very conscious that as ISIL has less of an ability to claim that the caliphate is ever expanding. They are now more reliant than ever on recruitment based on the notion that East is at war with the West, the Christian world is at war with the Muslim world. And he believes that the worst thing he can do is feed into that narrative, which is today more important to the recruitment drives of ISIL than ever before. So, yeah, um, the good news is that uh, ISIL is losing in the Middle East. The bad news is that ISIL is losing in the Middle East, which means it's more likely to express itself in other venues, hence Paris, uh, hence maybe a reliance on, on domestic uh, cells, uh, cells that don't have direct, that kind of direct contact. I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering about sort of the low-information American voter. Uh, this speech last night, it kind of took place between football games and heading into a Sunday night primetime schedule. It might have been directed at a lot of different audiences, but probably one of those audiences is the, the one that hasn't followed things all that carefully, doesn't know that much about the current debate about gun control, doesn't know maybe all that much about ISIL. And we can get into the specifics and the nuts and bolts of that. But I think one thing that they saw was a president who looked tired and a president who, president who looked irritable. He seemed as though he was having to respond to a lot of things said by res, uh, Republican presidential candidates without ever mentioning them, without ever alluding to them. Um, still, there were a lot of ways in which he seemed to be answering critiques that were arising out of that campaign. Yeah, listen, I think you can frame a lot of Obama's presidency in terms of a battle between a complicated truth coming up against a simple lie. Uh, and, you know, I would argue that that was a lot of what the healthcare debate was about. And certainly that's what he feels like he's facing right now, that when somebody like Ted Cruz goes out and says he's going to carpet bomb the terrorists, you know, for a lot of folks that aren't plugged into this debate on a daily basis, that sounds pretty damn good. You know, that sounds like something we should be doing. Um, but of course, it, it completely misunderstands the nature of how you fight a tactic and an ideology, which is terrorism. And so, I, listen, I, I think in this speech, in the speech that uh, he gave in the wake of Paris, um, he has sounded frustrated uh, with the line of argument coming from Trump and Cruz, et cetera, that seemed to be winning out. Um, but I think it's important that he um, provides this voice of reason, that he explains the subtlety uh, of the fight to defeat this vicious enemy. Me. And um, yeah, maybe he should be using some words uh, that plug a little bit better into uh, what Trump is plugging into and what Cruiser is plugging into. But by and large, he's the guy that has to make this debate about the subtlety of this issue. If he doesn't, nobody else will. So uh, some things that he said, I think, were direct signals to maybe low information voters. I mean, for example, seeing that Congress had been unable to deal with an issue that would seem as clear cut as restricting the ability of firearm purchases uh, from away from people who are on actual no-fly lists. That might have been news to a lot of people, and I think it, it suggests maybe his frustration with accomplishing anything through that place where you work. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is a very easy issue for people to understand, um, and the argument against it really doesn't hold water, and I don't think ultimately will hold the water for most people who are paying attention. So a simple issue is, you know, if you're on a terrorist watch list, you can't get on a plane, but right now you can buy a gun. And over the last 15 years, about 2,000 individuals who are on the terrorist watch list have bought weapons. Uh, seems that probably 99% of the people in Connecticut would think that those folks shouldn't buy guns. And Republicans say, well, we don't like that because a Occasionally, that list has mistakes in it. For instance, I guess Ted Kennedy was once on that list. Um, but uh, you know, the point is, is that the government makes some mistakes in everything it does. There are people on the list of, uh, of criminals who can't buy guns that shouldn't be on there. The Medicare and Medicaid programs make mistakes. Even the VA makes mistakes. If making one or two mistakes was a justification to not do something, then the federal government wouldn't do anything. And, and ultimately, that is a pretty black and white issue that the president grabbed onto that I think will allow people to understand what is in control of Congress to make things better. And listen, the reality is is that um, uh, these uh, these would-be terrorists have pretty easy access to very powerful weapons. And even if you can't stop them, it should be part of our policy as a government to make sure that when they do walk into a school or a workplace, that they do less damage than they would otherwise. And the quality of weapons that they have um, is part of that conversation. Right. The mistake that involves Ted Kennedy not being able to get to Chicago on time is not the same as the mistake where the wrong person gets a gun and does something horrible with it. Those are not the same kinds of mistakes. So, you know, given given the inflexibility and the intractability uh, of Republicans in Congress on these issues. One argument would be for President Obama to look for executive action uh, that he could use to expand the scope of gun control. One that's being mentioned a little bit is um, to expand the definition of what a regulated gun dealer is. Um, Obviously, that'll probably get tested in court and all this kind of stuff. Is that the way to go? I mean, you live with this every day. Is there any wiggle room anywhere in Congress on anything? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, I mean, last week was not an advertisement uh, for progress on gun law reform. I mean, if you can't get more than one Republican to support uh, the uh, a change in law to stop terrorists from getting guns, I'm not sure how we're going to get anything else done. So I think it's up to the president to see what he can do. And you're right, that's the most likely place uh, in which he can make a difference. I've been sort of leading the fight here in Congress to argue that the president should um, take a different look at how we define who a licensed gun dealer is and take these guys who are showing up every single weekend to gun shows or are selling dozens of weapons a month on uh, a line and say that they are licensed gun dealers and they have to provide background checks. Um, that, listen, that, that would get at some of what we think to be about 40% of gun sales today that happen outside of the scope of uh, background checks. That's something that, uh, that he can do. A little of your frustration seemed to boil over uh, on this uh, last week after San Bernardino. Uh, you tweeted, as many people did, about the kind of trope of saying our thoughts and prayers are with the families uh, of the victims. You said something to the effect that, well, your thoughts should be about something constructive you can do about this, and your prayers should be for mercy if you don't do anything. Um, you want to say anything more about that tweet? Uh, you know, I, listen, I... Um I was mad on Wednesday night, but I'm still mad today. And, you know, I don't back down from the idea that many of the people uh, in Congress and running for president who are tweeting their thoughts and prayers are doing it 
uh, as, a, as a cover for their complete lack of interest in changing the laws to prevent this mass slaughter. Um, I, listen, I come from the Sandy Hook experience. All those prayers and thoughts are important, and they were important to us. And frankly, it would be unnatural if your first instinct wasn't to offer prayers and thoughts and good wishes. But for a lot of uh, these guys running for president and in Congress, they're sending that out as their complete total checklist uh, as to what they're going to do in the wake of these shootings. And um, that's what's offensive to me, is that they're sending it out as a means to kind of signal that they care when they really don't care. Um, the, the fact is, if they did, they'd be talking about doing something, even passing mental health reform legislation that has really no partisan angle to it that would help. So, yeah, I, you know, sometimes I should think twice about what I tweet uh, when I'm, you know, angry, but uh, that one I don't regret. All right. So, um, you know, fearful people, frightened people make bad decisions. And in fact, I think it's harder probably to move people in the direction of things like gun control if they're afraid, if they think they might need a gun. So I was watching President Obama's speech last night, and I was thinking, if I were a fearful person, this wouldn't make me less fearful, even though the speech had some calming words in it and some reassurances and certainly exhortations for us to trust one another, uh, including our, our fellow our Muslim American uh, friends and citizens, if, there's, if they have demonstrated no reason not to trust them. There, there were things like that. But I wonder, I wonder in a somewhat frightened electorate whether more needs to be said about the rationality of being super afraid of something that's still as exotic as a domestic terrorism attack. Yeah, although he can't win, right, because there are also plenty of commentators who looked at that speech last night and said that he didn't take the threat seriously enough, uh, that he didn't make the case that these guys are as evil as many think they truly are. So I think he was trying to um, uh, walk this fine line between plugging into what is a legitimate emotion out there uh, and trying to rationalize it. Because as you say, you know, if you look at the scope of gun deaths over the course of 2015, 99% of them have come at the hands of someone who had nothing to do with, uh, with radical ideology. And you are much more likely today to be hit by a car or killed in a flurry of bullets that has nothing to do with Islam than you are to be killed by a terrorist. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that th there is going to be an impossibility to what he is trying to do, which is to recognize that people are angry about this, that, they, that they're fearful of it, that they want a president to plug into that, but then to guide it somewhere constructive. Um, and I thought he did as good a job as he could uh, last night uh, in trying to walk that line. I mean, the other part of this, obviously, and, and the other part of his message uh, is that, uh, as we keep saying, okay, ISIL is losing real estate and they're losing bodies uh, in Syria and, and Iraq. Um, so in order to function, they're going to be reliant on new recruitment, recruiting people who don't live in Syria and Iraq, people who live in the United States, people who live in Western Europe. So one of the things you don't want to do is create a climate in which maybe uh, a Muslim who's a little bit on the tipping point or a, a little bit um, angry about certain policies becomes more angry, right? You want to be the good guys. You want to not give people a reason to turn against us. Um, and what, what we have been successful at thus far in the United States um, has been the integration of immigrants of you know every stripe into uh, our society and our civilization, and we've been successful in that with Muslim immigrants as well. Um, Europeans have been less successful at that, and part of the reason why you've seen this radicalization happen in places like Belgium or France or Great Britain that frankly hasn't happened at that scope or scale here uh, is because they have segmented and isolated those populations. And so that's the risk here is that not only you know by uh, putting 
10,000 or 20,000 troops into Iraq or Syria, would you provide recruitment material for them? But by isolating those communities here, because we all get afraid that our next door neighbor who goes to a mosque is somehow going to attack us, um, that feeds into that kind of cycle of radicalization um, that has not started, at the, as I said, at the scope that it has in other places. And so you heard him talk yesterday about you know, everybody keeping their eyes and ears open. Um, and I think, as you maybe have pointed out, um, we need to be very clear about what we're asking people to keep their eyes and ears out for. Um, because if it's just keeping their eyes and ears out for people who look or think or act differently than them, um, then we will spin into that cycle of isolation uh, that it would be very detrimental to our national security. Senator Chris Murphy, thanks so much for your time and for your good words on this. Thanks. All right. We're going to take another one of those little breaks. Actually, we're sort of done with the show, but some very nice people are going to come on and talk to you about why you should support this station and this show. Please, during our hour, support the station. That means you're supporting the show. And the number to call to make your pledge of support is 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org. Another edition of the Colin McEnroe Show is finished. That was a scramble, and we just heard from Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, Every Monday, Colin's bringing you this show, but we can't do it unless you pick up the phone or go online and make that pledge of support. I'm Patrick Scale. I'm here with John Dankosky. And we are asking you to make that call or go online and make that pledge. Once again, the number is 1-800-584-2788. Yeah, trying to make sense of the world today on the scramble, trying to figure out what's happening. And there's been a lot of fairly unpleasant news over the course of the last week or so. We're able to bring this to you because listeners like you in the past, have given us money generously so that we can continue to do this. And it's really great that we rely on our listeners and not on big corporations, certainly not on the government to uh, to fund us. We rely on you because you love this programming. So why don't you give us a little something? Maybe it's $5 a month. That's a $60 pledge or $100 for the whole year, a one-time contribution. Do it now at 1-800-584-2788. And don't delay. we got a goal of $1,500 right now, Patrick, and uh, we're about $220 into that goal. Yep. So that's not uh, you're the science guy. That's, we got a little uh, you, work to do. I think there's a little bit of math work to do there between <laughs> two twenty and fifteen hundred. Uh, we did get a pledge from uh, Lloyd, who called in from New York. Lloyd, thank you very much. And uh, an anonymous uh, donor just joined us from Barkhamstead, Connecticut, uh, renewing their membership. So we're asking you to do that now. It's the end of the year. It's a season of giving. Uh, it could also help you on your tax return as well. If you value that stuff, and if you value this station, if you value Colin McEnroe uh, and, and the work that he and his producers are doing five days a week. It is a really, really heavy lift uh, that they do on on a short budget and a small staff. But they do it because, A, they love it, and, B, they know that you love it too. So uh, show us how much you love it by making a pledge of support right now. It could be $60. It could be $100. could be whatever level works. Just the most important thing is that you do join that community of donors, 1-800-584-2788. As someone who hosts a daily talk show myself, I can say – there is nothing like the Colin McEnroe Show on the radio anywhere yeah. in America. Now, I, I actually spend a lot of time uh, working with other NPR stations, and I go around the country, and I talk to people uh, who do programs that are sort of like my show, mm-hmm. and there's nothing that's at all like Colin McEnroe's show. Now, why do we have Colin McEnroe here? Because he's a fan of this radio station. He came here yeah. because he wanted to be here telling uh, his stories, doing his sorts of shows to you on WNPR, and it's obviously been a big success, and we're just asking you to help support it right now. Give us a little something to make sure that we know that the Colin McEnroe Show will be supported. Uh, call us at 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. There's nothing else like the Colin McEnroe Show, and there's no other uh, medium in the journalistic field or environment that
that could sort of bring this to you. 49 minutes of just uninterrupted conversation presented without bias. It's just facts, and it's a little humor, too. So if you value that, call up right now, support it. Go online, wnpr.org, or give us a call, 1-800-584-2788.